0: I've already prayed that the Lord would bless his word to us, and I believe that he will this morning right here, right now. So let's trust it as we come to the first few verses of Exodus chapter 14. And we remember that it's in this great passage that we're seeing the aftermath of what happened after Israel was so gloriously set free from their hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. There they were bound as a slave people, living a slave existence in Israel for generation upon generation, until at the right time God raised up a deliverer named Moses. And even though it didn't happen neat and clean, there was some mess along the way. God put forth Moses to be this great deliverer of the people of Israel, and they came out. Oh, Pharaoh didn't want to let them go easily. But God beat upon him and beat upon him with a series of 10 plagues. And by the end of that horrific final plague upon the firstborn, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, they were pushing the Israelites. Please get out. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel, they were free. They weren't under servitude to any foreign king, to any leader as that. They were free. And you would think, and they lived happily ever after. Amen. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works in real life. You know, the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, sets us free. It sets us free from the penalty of sin. It's working right now upon the power of sin in our life. And one day it's going to set us free from the very presence of sin. But along the way, along the way, there's battles to be fought we got to look to the lord our god as our defender that's exactly what god does on behalf of the children of israel right here in exodus 14 verse 1 now the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the children of israel that they turn and camp before pi haroth between migdol and the sea opposite baal zephon and you shall camp before it by the sea for pharaoh will say to the children of israel they are bewildered by the land the wilderness has closed them in then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his armies so that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So as Israel's now heading out of the land of Goshen, God is going to lead them. Now, remember, how is he leading them? How does Israel know where to go? Are they using sophisticated maps? Do they have a nice, you know, navigation system? Well, they have the best navigation system of all. They have a pillar of cloud, above the glory of God that leads them in the daytime and by the night they have a pillar of fire that's there as a presence for them. I don't imagine that they had very many night marches, but maybe occasionally God would have lit up the way with the pillar of fire if he did. But there they are making their way through the wilderness, being led by God, his express presence in the in the form of that pillar leading them every step along the way. And God did something. I don't mean this to sound strange. God did something sneaky to Pharaoh. God deliberately led Israel in a way that looked confused right there in verse three. It says it. Pharaoh would say, looking at their path, they are bewildered by the land. They don't know where to go. They're walking themselves into a trap. They don't know. And so Pharaoh, with all of his intelligence officers and the people watching the movements of the people of Israel, He said, aha, we let him go. But but now, look, they're walking themselves into a trap. God did this to lure Pharaoh into his own destruction, as we're going to see work out, starting at verse five here. It says, now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with them. Also, he took six hundred choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them camping by the sea besides Pi Hatteroth and before Baal Zephon. Do you see what it says there in verse 5? I find this fascinating. It's strange, but so typical according to human nature. What does it say in verse 5? Pharaoh said, why have we done this? If we've let Israel go from serving us. There they go. He sees millions of slaves leaving his land, all that labor. What a, what a catastrophe that would be for the whole economy of Egypt. And now he stands back and says, why did we ever do that? I don't know if I was one of the advisors of Pharaoh at that time. I'd say, Pharaoh, I can give you 10 reasons why we did that. Don't you remember those 10 horrible plagues that came upon us? They were a hot potato that we had to let go of. We couldn't hold on to them any longer. Pharaoh, you crazy. Why did we go out and get them? The Israelites were nothing but trouble when we held on to them. Now you want to reach out and grab them again. But Pharaoh was mad in his own rebellion against God and that insanity that a man or a woman can find themselves in when they sort of let go of God, it's going to drive him to reach out and to try to pursue Israel, even though they had been set free by the blood of the Passover lamb. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a spiritual analogy for us here if we will look at it. The spiritual analogy goes something like this, that sometimes we think that the devil will let go of us easily. We say, yes, I've been set free by the blood of the Passover lamb. I'm free now. Uh, Satan, Pharaoh, whatever you want to draw in this analogy. I'm leaving. I'm gone. I've been set free. It's almost as if as we begin to walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us, that the devil reaches out his wretched hand and he tries to lay hold on us and to do the very best he can to either destroy us or to keep us in some kind of bondage. You know what you and I need at a moment like that? we need a defender. We need somebody who's going to stand up on our behalf and say, look, we will trust in you if you will defend us. And that's what Israel's going to do in this chapter. They're going to put their focus upon the Lord and God's going to come through and defend them. And let me tell you, they needed the defense. Look at it there in verse seven. Pharaoh sent out 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt. Pharaoh had the best military resources Chariots were the most sophisticated military technology available at that time that the people of Israel could just get mowed down by these hundreds of chariots that Pharaoh would send after the defenseless people of Israel. The children of Israel didn't have anything on their behalf except for one thing. They had an attitude, an attitude that's described there in verse eight. It says that the children of Israel went out with boldness. Now, there's a little fascinating thing towards the original Hebrew word that's used there for boldness. In the original phrasing, the idea of boldness has in it the idea of being rebellious. It's sort of being, you know, defiant in that sense of boldness. Let me tell you, I think this is wonderful. The children of Israel had an appropriately rebellious, defiant spirit. Now, I say appropriately because we're going to see later on in the book of Exodus, they're going to exercise that rebellious heart in an inappropriate way. But I find comfort in this for myself because I look at myself and I say, I'm basically a rebellious person. That's just who I am. If I see trends going one way, I want to go the other way. It's just it just it's just kind of the way I'm wearing. I just don't want to be like that. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this in first service. I don't know if it's an effective illustration or not. I'll just use it anyway. I'll try it out second service as well. I've worn the same style of sunglasses for about 30 years. And what's funny about it is if you wear something that long, if you wear something for 30 years, they'll come into fashion and they'll come out of fashion. They'll, I think it's been three or four times now that they've come into fashion and out of fashion. Well, here's the thing. Whenever they come back into fashion, I'm strongly tempted to toss them aside. It's like, well, if everybody's wearing them, then I don't want to wear them. You see, that's just, just a, a silly illustration of this basic rebelliousness in my own heart. Now, I don't know if you're like that, but I'll tell you this. That rebelliousness in my heart or your heart, Israel's heart, if it's channeled in the right direction, it can be a glorious thing. Israel, if you're going to rebel against something, why don't you rebel against Pharaoh. Say, forget it, Pharaoh. I'm done with you. No more domination over me. You're not going to exercise your authority over me one day longer. That's a good kind of rebelliousness. Now, later on, Israel will show that rebelliousness in a bad way because they're going to show defiance against Moses. They're going to show defiance against the God of Israel. But yet, if they would just direct their defiance in the right way, God could actually use it. And I say the same thing to you. Are you basically a rebellious person? good. God can use it. You just direct it in the right place. You direct this against a culture that defies God. And wants to set, them. you say, I'm not going to follow in with that. I'm going to rebel against this culture that speaks out against God. You, you, you do it in a way that you rebel against the world, the flesh and the devil. And that's a good kind of rebellion to have. So I like it when it says that they went out with boldness. But look at their response. Verse 10 And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why are you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians so that we could then that we should die in the wilderness. Now, notice when all this took place, the beginning of verse 10 says that they started having this change in thinking when Pharaoh drew near. Oh, it's one thing to say, well, forget it, Pharaoh. I don't want anything to do with you. I'll leave you with boldness. It's one thing to say that when you seem like you're on your own in the wilderness. But once you see the rising dust of the multitude of Pharaoh's hundreds of chariots bearing down upon you from the distance in the wilderness and you realize those mighty people are coming against me to kill me, well, then you start getting afraid, don't you? That's what verse 10 says. It says that they were very afraid. If you don't mind me saying, it made sense for them to be afraid. This was a real danger. I mean, that's one thing I can say in favor of the children of Israel right here. At least they were afraid over a legitimate thing. We meet people from time to time. I'll talk to them about their problems, and they're very upset about some problem. And they get to talking about it, and you go, you know, on the scale of things, that's a pretty small thing. Now, this was not a small thing. At least the Israelites were afraid, they were upset by something that was a legitimate danger. They seemed to have no chance for escape because in front of them was the Red Sea. Behind them were the armies of the Egyptians. It seemed like there was no way out. So what did they do? Verse 10 tells us of a good thing they did. Did you see it in there? It says that they cried out to the Lord. That's good. Way to go. You're in that desperate place. There's no way out. Cry out to God. Pour out your soul to him. Look upon him. But then they did something bad, starting in verse 11. They're talking to God was good, but then they started complaining to Moses. And do you see what they complained to Moses about? It's fascinating. Verse 11. What, because there were no graves in Egypt? Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is brilliant. They're accused. This is the ultimate conspiracy theory. Moses, you engineered this whole thing to bring us out to the wilderness so that we could be slaughtered. Can you imagine Moses saying, Why would I waste my time? Are you kidding me? You think this is my plan? I wonder if Moses got pretty angry. You've got to be kidding. You really think that this was my plan, especially they were so sarcastic about it. What do I mean about sarcastic? Did you see what they said in verse 11? It says this because there were no graves in Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, Egypt was filled with graves. There were tombs and monuments and graves everywhere. The the Egyptians were a death-obsessed culture. There were probably more graves per square inch in Egypt than any place else. Graves, yes, there's all these kind of graves in Egypt. So they're being super sarcastic and super biting to Moses when they say this. And this was wrong. They were setting their heart and their mind in a completely wrong place, which is really illustrated by verse 12, where they said this, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now that must have hit Moses hard. What are you kidding me? you saying that everything I did was for naught, that there was nothing good in this, that it would have been better to leave you in the bondage of your state in Egypt No, Moses says, no way. That's not how it's going to happen. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. I love this. I love how Moses stands in front of the people and it's almost by the sheer force of his will. Now, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't God doing it. It was God working in and through Moses. But Moses was so determined here. It's as if he was going to grab a hold of the people and say, no, you will not unbelieve. You, you will have faith. I'm going to draw you into the faith that you should have. So what does he tell him? It's really spectacular. He gave them three concrete steps in verse three. And I want you to remember these. These three concrete steps, the first thing is he told them, do not be afraid. Your fear is crippling you. Your fear is making it that you don't know to go to the right hand or the left. You don't know what to do. Get rid of the fear. You stop being afraid. Secondly, verse 13 says, stand still. Moses told the children of Israel to stop. Now, oftentimes, I'm certainly going to say every time, but oftentimes, That is the Lord's word of direction to a believer in crisis. He simply says to them, stop. Stop your panic. Stop your running around. Why don't you just stop? And, And do you remember that verse from the Psalms? Be still and know that I am God. You are working so hard in your own effort and energy that you can't put your eyes upon me at all. First, I want you to stop being afraid. And secondly, I want you just to stand still. Now, notice, though, it said stand still. Oh, be ready for movement. Be ready for action. You stand, but you stand still in the place that God wants you to be. Ladies and gentlemen, in a time of crisis, that's often exactly the last thing that we want to do. I mean, think of Israel here. Despair would have cast them down and kept them from standing. Fear would have told them to retreat. Impatience would have told them to do something right then. Presumptious would have told presumption would have told them to jump in the Red Sea before it was parted. No, no, all of that was wrong. They were to stop being afraid and then to stand still where they were. And then did you see it in verse 13? The third aspect. See the salvation of the Lord. I want you to be sensitive. This At this moment, Moses had no clue what God was going to do. Does anybody think Moses said, yeah, I know exactly how you're going to God. You're going to part the waters of the Red Sea and we'll walk through on dry land. Oh, did I just spoil the story for somebody there? That's really how it, it continues on. But that's that's what happens here. Does anybody think that Moses figured that out ahead of time? I don't think so. I think that the solution that God brought was from such an outside place that Moses could have never imagined it. And that gives me so much hope. It gives me so much hope to realize that so often God's answers to my problems his, his solution to my crisis. It comes from a place I can't even imagine. Did you know that God has answers to your situation that you haven't thought of yet? I know you've given him your list on all the ways that he should solve your problems. Do you know what God does with that list? Sometimes he just rips it up. He just says, forget it. I don't know what Moses thought God would do maybe Moses I don't know what you're going to do I know you're going to do something but it was completely beyond God has a treasury of resources and he was going to take from that secret hidden treasury of his resources and do something great for Israel and he'll do the same thing for you you don't have to know about it before he does it so God bless Moses standing before the people of Israel just stirring them to strength and confidence Listen, Israel, do three things. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Look to him. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at that Egyptian army. Look to the Lord. Now, verse 15 is classic. Look at how it starts here. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Let's stop right there. This is amazing. First of all, first of all, I love what God said to Moses. Why do you cry to me? OK, th- this is how I pictured. it. I know I'm reading a little bit in the text, but I-, I think it's warranted here. So just follow along as much as you can. Here, um, Moses speaks to the panicking people of Israel they're panicked. They don't know what to do. They're sure they're going to die. And Moses says, no, stop. God is going to come through. Don't be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. And he instills such confidence in them like a good leader. Moses is unwavering. He's like a rock. God's going to do it. And then as soon as Moses, you know, leaves the presence of the children, of the Israel, he goes back to his tent and he goes, oh, God, would you please do something? I don't know what you're going to do. Oh, Lord. Man, this is a bad one, Lord. And how many times leaders are frankly like that? Sure, look, I want to give you confidence, but oh, Lord, you got to do this, God. I don't know what you're going to do. And in that midst of that kind of supplication, that kind of crying out to the Lord, what does God say? Verse 15. Why do you cry to me? Moses, hello, stop praying. Get busy. There's stuff for you to do. Listen. Sometimes it's the wrong thing to pray. That's a shocking statement coming from the mouth of a preacher. But let me modify it just a little bit. Sometimes it's wrong to stop doing and to only pray. Moses, pray along the way. Get busy. That Egyptian army stopped. This is not a time for a prayer meeting. Pray in the midst of what you're doing. But you get busy. Stop praying. Get working. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we use prayer as a dodge from what we should really be doing. You know that's true. You know it. I know it. That sometimes when you want to politely refuse a request, what do you say? I'll pray about it. <laughs> Isn't that a polite Christian way of saying no? So you say, "I'll pray about it." Yeah, right. Now look, sometimes that's a legitimate thing, of course, but you know, sometimes that's misused but there's some things you just don't need to pray about. Really? You don't need to pray about trusting Jesus. Just trust him today. You don't need to pray about obeying his commandments. You just obey them. You don't need to pray about repenting. Just repent. Praying without doing these things can be a strong mark of disobedience. So let's pick it up here in the middle of verse 16. God very casually tells Moses, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Oh, well, that sounds very simple. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen lift up your rod, stretch out your hand. Now, does anybody think that the lifting of the rod, the stretching of the hand actually caused the Red Sea to part? No. But it was Moses's display of obedience to God that God used in a mighty way to do something that God only could do. Now, you ask yourself, well, what would have happened if Moses wouldn't have done that, if Moses wouldn't have taken that Charlton Heston pose, what might have God done? Well, you say, well, then God wouldn't have parted the sea. But but Moses doing this didn't really part. But listen, we do what God tells us to do. And then God does what only he can do. And that's how it worked in this situation. So look how it continues on verse 19. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus, it was a cloud and a darkness to the one. And it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. An angel of the Lord was leading Israel. Now, I'm supposing that the angel of the Lord was normally invisible, that they couldn't see him. But God dispatched that angel from being on the front of Israel's lines to the rear to be a defense for them. And then he dispatched the pillar of cloud that was the marker of his presence. And he sent it from the front of the line to the back so that it could be a barrier, a defense between the encroaching Egyptian army and the helpless people of Israel. And through this, God defended and protected his people. Now I know what you're saying. You're saying, oh, I wish God would defend me that way. Well, first of all, I want you to know he is defending you right now. I don't mean to alarm anybody here this morning, but I'll say what I plan to say. It's simply this. If you only knew what the devil wished he could do to you, you'd be terrified. One day, Jesus told the disciple Peter, he said to him, I I can't get this phrase out of my mind. It it makes a chill run down my spine. He says, Peter, Satan has asked for you like he so that he may sift you as wheat. Whoa. And you just think, oh, man. What the devil wishes he could do to me. Thank you, God, for defending me. Now, look, we're we're not going to be so crass as to think, "Okay, God, defending me means preserve me from any difficulty or trouble. No, no. But it means he will only carefully measure what comes through to us. And ladies and gentlemen, however bad you think you have it right now, the devil wishes he could do far worse against you. But God is defending you. Did you see how he did it with Israel? He sent that angel. He sent that pillar of cloud. And so now it comes to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And it made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went in the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There's no way to describe that other than just being a flat out miracle. There's Moses raising his hands above the sea and God does only what he can do and it parts Parts with like a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on the other. And I don't know if they could see fishes and dolphins swimming along inside of those walls. I don't know. But there they were and it was dry ground, at least dry enough. And they went through on the surface and hundreds of thousands, if not a few million of Israelites made it through in a mass evacuation from one side of that shore to the other side of that shore. All the while, while Moses laid, raised his hands and God did that spectacular miracle. Now, I wonder one one thing that you probably think you thinking, well, where did this happen? I don't have time to discuss it this morning. We're going to get into that next week. It's fascinating. It's fascinating some of the newer approaches that have come to the understanding of where this happened. And I don't know where exactly happened there. Some people suggest that it happened in a very shallow body of water that's in that general area. They say this very shallow body of water, sometimes it'll part because of a strong wind that comes upon it and people can walk through. And I think, well, I don't know how shallow it was. It had to be deep enough to drown the Egyptians that are going to follow after them. Unless God worked a miracle by drowning thousands of Egyptians in three inches of water. If he did, that's another miracle. If he did that. I don't know. We'll talk about that next week, but I think it's important. But this morning, I just want you to picture in your minds this idea. Here it is. God leading them through Moses, raising his hands. The waters parted. The impossible has happened. Oh, again, they might have thought God would do it a lot of other ways. He'd bring his deliverance. To me, the most logical solution to this was God to send a couple of angels and to wipe out the Egyptian army. I mean, that seems the most logical. God didn't want to do it that way. He was going to perform the impossible. And what seemingly could not be done, God was going to do. And he did it out of the treasury of his wisdom and his wise resources. And so they went through verse 21. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Some people point to naturalistic phenomenon that can recreate a similar kind of scenario. And ladies and gentlemen, I can't tell you with certainty whether or not God did use or didn't use some natural phenomenon. To me, it doesn't really matter. What I read in the text seems to speak to me of something so much greater than any mere natural phenomenon, that this was the hand of God. It certainly wasn't an accident. Can anybody just tell me that that? Well, Israel came at a lucky time when the wind was blowing. No, no, no. this was no accident. And if God to a lower or a greater degree used natural, found, well, then whatever. God is certainly within his power to do that. But the important thing is this was no accident. This was a stupendous miracle by the power of God. And they went through and they escaped. But ladies and gentlemen, that road that was opened up through the midst of the Red Sea Yes, yes, it was a path of escape for the Israelites, but it was also a path of of a following upon and a war path for the Egyptian army. What's going to happen to that? Well, we start here right at verse 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen now it came to pass in the morning. Watch that the Lord looked down upon the arm of the Egyptians to the pillar of the fire and cloud. And he troubled the arm of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove with them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. Moses holds out his arms and the seas parted at the command of God. When the Egyptians are in the midst of that path that was created between the Red Sea at the command of God, Moses brings his arms back down and the sea comes crashing down upon that Egyptian army that sought to destroy the people of God. And Israel is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, why, why did God do it that way? Why didn't God just make this barrier between them so that the children of Israel could look back from on one side of the Red Sea and look over the Egyptians on the other side, say, ha ha, can't get us. Why did God do it that way? I'll tell you why God did it that way to show something powerful to the people of Israel, that their enemies were really dead and would trouble them no more. Look at it right there. We'll finish up the chapter. Verse twenty nine. We read. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt so that the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. It's a horrific thought. But when the Israelites saw the morning dawn, they went out to that beach that had been their deliverance and they saw bodies of dead Egyptian soldiers wash up upon the sea. There they are in all their armor. There they are with the swords that if they were allowed to, they would have murdered every one of the Israelites if they were given the opportunity. And they saw those dead soldiers and God spoke to them so powerfully as they looked at the dead Egyptians on the seashore and they said, those people won't ever bother you again. My victory over them is complete. It's done. You never have to be afraid of it again. And oppressed people are slow to believe that they're really free as long as their tyrant is still alive. And God wanted to show Israel that the Egyptians were dead. Ladies and gentlemen, do you mind if I apply this spiritually to your life right now by spiritual analogy? God has won a great work in your life. He set you free by the blood of the Passover lamb. And He set you out of Egypt, and you thank God for the freedom that He's given you. But God wants you to know that you are truly free. And by analogy, in the corners of your mind, wouldn't God love to show you some dead Egyptians, so to speak, on the seashore? You look at them and you say, That sinful habit that once bound me, it's gone that fear and unbelief that once held me in chains, that addiction, that bitterness, that struggle in my life. It's gone. It's dead. Now, I believe that there's a real sense right in the here and now that God will work that into our life today. But ultimately, it's going to happen for us in every aspect, in every victory, where one day, because of the great work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, We will look at death itself and death itself will be like a dead soldier on the beach. And we'll look at it and we'll say, you will never bother us again. Verse 30 says, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. Do you know that for real in your life? Not just the purchase by the Passover lamb but the confirmation of the victory by seeing death itself overcome. Ladies and gentlemen, I see a great analogy right here to the work that Jesus has done for us. Our Passover lamb died on a cross and took the penalty in his own self that you and I deserved. And that blood cleanses us from all sin. But God loves us enough to give us an additional evidence of that great victory. And Jesus opened up the tomb of his resurrection and he says, you look wide in and you see that death itself is defeated. That's for you and I right here and right now. You could say that the deliverance of the Passover lamb and the miracle of the Red Sea go together. And now God calls you to do the same thing and says that the people fear the Lord and believe the Lord and his servant Moses. Did you see that in verse 31? They saw the great thing that God did. And it renewed their faith. They trusted in him more than ever. God, you are the one and I believe it. God's stirring your faith right here, right now, the same way. Don't you want God to defend you the same way? Don't you want to look upon the Lord as your defender? Then here's what you do. Exactly what God called upon Israel to do. Are you ready? First, stop being afraid. I'll give it to you as a commandment. Just stop it. Stop being afraid. Secondly, secondly, what did he tell them to do? Stand still. Stop running around like that proverbial chicken with your head cut off. Why don't you stand still and see what God will do? And then number three, and perhaps most importantly. Put your eyes on the Lord. See the salvation of the Lord. It's not within you But it's within God. Look to him. You do those things. You'll see God be your mighty defender right here, right now. Father, that's my prayer for your people. I pray that your mighty defense would be real in lives today. Lord, there's people here. They feel like they're under such attack. They feel like their lives are spinning out of control. Jesus, would you now be their defender Would you give them that ability now to stop being afraid, to stand still, and to see your salvation? Jesus, work that among us now. We ask that you would. We know that it's not a matter of human ingenuity. Instead, Lord, it's a matter of the work of your Spirit to do this work in hearts here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.